welcome to the Wanting to Wealthy podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hogan. As someone who grew up in a pretty scarce environment and came out of college with a lot of debt, stuff, and insecurity, I thought that was just the lot I had to deal with in life. After several years of this, I decided that there had to be another way and gave away over half of my stuff, started working on my debt, and began looking at things through a lens that focused on my values and not what I thought others thought I should be doing. This podcast is all about the journey that happens from wanting to wealthy, and I'm so glad you decided to be part of it. Thank you to all of my current and future Patreon supporters. Patreon tiers start as little as a dollar a month, and depending on the tier you choose, you can get discounts to upcoming events and workshops, as well as being part of the community of individuals and families working to change their money story through actions, support, and accountability. If you're ready to become a Patreon member, go to patreon.com slash wanting to wealthy or this first interview podcast since January, um, I have slightly forced my husband to come on here. Uh, His name is Sean Hogan, and you've heard me tell parts of his story, um, but he has uh, a business in construction and agriculture in a place that, A, I haven't interviewed anybody in those, and B, they have a large barrier to entry, and, um, you know, with the different, it's agriculture and construction season right now, and um, these are industries that have really high median ages, and more people getting into those industries um is always the goal we have to have people to feed us we have to have people to to um build our buildings and things like that but um also i wanted him to be able to share his side of the story so um here it is thanks for listening thank you for joining me for our first interview since January um and I get to have a slightly different interview today because I am interviewing my husband so I've told you guys lots of stories about him um but now you're gonna get to hear his side of the story and a little more about his business and having more um guys in general on the podcast so let's start with telling us about you and your business so who are you what do you do what do you like to do and about your business my name is sean hogan i'm ashley's husband um and i own and am the sole employee for hogan enterprises hay and equipment um right now the business is mainly focused on the construction side so gravel pads driveways site prep, land clearing, uh, light excavation. Uh, but we are also slowly starting to branch over into the hay side, which is the other half of the name. Um, and we hope to expand and grow more in both areas, hopefully in the next few years. Okay. So where did you grow up and kind of what's your background that might make you, um, that made you want to do this business? I grew up on a dairy farm in Tillamook. Um, my family has one there and so i've basically been 
running ag equipment since I was long enough to almost reach the pedals. Um, and then obviously I graduated high school, went off to college for diesel technology. And then from there, basically I've just either been running equipment or driving semi trucks or working on both. Um, and so as a kid, I remember telling my cousins and friends that when I grew up, I wanted to be a professional Bobcat driver. And so I guess in the simplest of terms, my business now allows me to be a professional Bobcat driver. <laughs> That's perfect. And what other uh, type of equipment do you run? Uh, skid steers, which is the Bobcat, um, or compact track loaders, um, bulldozers, excavators, uh, ag tractors, all the attachments that go along with that. Um, the hay side has hay grapples for the tractor and the, and the skid steer. Um, eventually, we're hoping to add, you know, mowers and rakes and balers and wrappers and um, things that go along with the hay production itself. Um, we've got pickups, trailers, dump trailers. So, um, assuming people know things like tractors and excavators and things like that um something they might not know is like a wrapper or a, a accumagrapple um can you explain what those things are uh so the accumagrapple is a handy dandy two-in-one tool um it allows you to collect small square bales out of a field so instead of having to go along and pick them up one by one and buck them up onto a trailer or have them loaded onto a trailer and then stack them um, it allows you to get them into bundles of 10, and then you can grab the whole thing, pick it up, set it on a trailer, um, essentially eliminating the manual labor aspect of small square bales as far as getting them out of the field and getting them into the barns. Um, it also makes it so that one or two people can do the whole process, whereas traditionally by hand, you know, it's three or four. Um and a bale wrapper is just for uh, mostly the production of haylage or silage. Um, and it's literally just a plastic wrap that goes around the bale to allow it to then ferment into silage so that it doesn't uh, mold or be subjected to bugs or pests. And um, so that makes it to where it's um, a little more like climate or temperature stable within different areas of the country or the state. Kind of. It's mostly just to aid in the fermentation so the grass can ferment into silage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some animals will eat silage. Some cannot uh, eat silage as well, depending on the type of digestive system that they have. So um, how old is your business officially and how long have you been wanting to have this business? Uh, the business is officially about two and a half years old, and I've been scheming, dreaming, contemplating, trying to figure it out to make it all happen for at least 15, 20 years. And um, what did some of those processes look like? Why did it take so long from conception to actually having the equipment and do you own all of that equipment technically no the bank owns most of my equipment right now 
I think part of the reason it took so long is because originally when I started thinking about this stuff, it was always kind of a, oh, that's a nice thought or, oh, that would be cool to do someday or, oh, you know, it would be nice if this this was the way it was or if this is what was happening. Um, and so I think because at that point in my life, it was kind of the go to school, get a good job, you know, the traditional school job, wife, kids, white picket fence, little house, whatever. That you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, because I'm fairly certain that deciding that you want to start your own small business is definitely not with tradition. Um, and uh, and it's not bad to follow tradition if that's what you want to do, because obviously not everybody can be a business owner. Not everybody can have a business because then there wouldn't be any employees. There wouldn't be any workers. Everybody would just be a business owner. Um, and so I think that was a lot of it. And I think it took it took me doing several different careers, if you will, and working for many different contractors or many different other business owners for me to decide that maybe I should look at doing my own business a little more seriously and to start maybe trying to figure out if that's something that's viable, if that's something that can happen, if there's a way to do it. Um, it definitely takes a strong network of people and support system from like family and friends and stuff, because I don't know that I would be able to do much of any of this without having a good support system and, you know, also being able to utilize resources as far as like mentorship, like I'm not a money or numbers person. So the money and numbers side of the business, I definitely need someone who is good with money and numbers to help me with that part. So sometimes I like to just be like, you know, me equipment. The rest of it's somebody else's problem. But thankfully, as a business owner, you don't get to do that anymore. That's what employees get to do. So I've had to also work on getting out of that mindset and realizing that there is a lot more to being a business owner than just, oh, my name's on the equipment and I get to run it, which, you know, for a long time was kind of how I thought it would go. Yeah. And you've been in a house with other people who have run some sort of business of their own aside from a w-2 job for for years um how has your uh perspective on what we've been doing changed now that you're also a business owner i think of some of the things that i used to see that you guys would do would be like let's that doesn't make any sense why why is that a thing or you know that's that seems strange or silly but whatever and now realizing that those parts are part of being a business owner. And I just didn't realize it at the time. Can you give an example? Uh, like going through, going through financials. I mean, obviously I know that business and business financials are a thing. Um, but I didn't know to the extent and depth of the importance of having a good financial advisor or a good financial accountant or anything like that as far as a business i went well you go out and do work and make money and then that money goes into the business and then you use that to expand the business and keep the business going but there's so much more than that 
And so breaking down the numbers as much as you guys do on your businesses and breaking down each month, you know, figuring out exactly this and exactly that didn't really make a lot of sense to me until I realized that that's a part of having your own business is, is there's a lot more desk work, a lot more numbers, a lot more, Mm -hmm. a lot more behind the scenes than just, Oh, I get to have my, my name on the side of the truck or on the tractor and, I get to go out and drive the truck and run the tractor. Like for me, that's the fun stuff I get to do. Not as much as all the other stuff I have to do. That's in conjunction with that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to probably be even more so as the business grows and I'm able to hire my first employees and start having them do the work and trying to grow. And that's probably going to turn more and more into where I'm probably going to have less and less time in the equipment or driving the trucks to do the things that, I always said I wanted to do. So what prevents you personally from just going, I'm going to drive the truck, I'm going to drive the equipment and just having someone else do all the rest of it? Uh, Well, one cost, um, because obviously to have other people do that work for you, I mean, mm-hmm. anything, yeah. anything that you have other people do for you that's outside of, you know, like your family or your friends or nice enough to be willing to do that stuff for free or cheap i would have to hire probably at least two other people to one that just does managerial stuff and make sure the day-to-day stuff goes the way it's supposed to Mm -hmm. and do estimates and call customers and things of that nature Mm -hmm. and then another person who probably only did numbers and only did the money and was completely in charge of the business's financials Mm -hmm. so adding people, being able to afford said people. Mm-hmm. And then also at that point, is it really your business? I mean, it might be your name on it, but if the other people are in charge of the financials and the day-to-day and they're the ones that see the whole picture, they're probably also going to be the best ones to make the decisions for the business overall. If you are the person who has your name on the side of the equipment, but you don't know what's going on in your business, there's a lot of implications that can happen with that as far as, you know, embezzlement or people taking advantage of it or things that you just, you may have a very different perspective of what is happening than what is actually happening because you're not seeing that part of it. Not that you should micromanage it. I like that you mentioned that you should have people who know the money doing the money, but you should also be aware of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I know that money is numbers are not my strength, but I know that I know enough to be able to sit down with the people who that is their strength. And then they can, we can have a conversation Mm -hmm. from that. I can take that and go, okay, we need to do X, Y, Z, or we need to change this. or we need to do that. Or we need to add something or take something away. Or when it comes time, like this year with all the new acquisitions for the business, like, If I just went into the dealership and said, hey, I want to buy these things with no idea of what the business was doing or how the business was doing, there's a pretty good chance that by the end of this year, I'd probably be giving it all back because I'd be upside down in payments I couldn't make. And then my business goes out. How do you communicate with me as your partner on the money side of both the business and the personal level? Because we have we have personal monies and then we've got business monies and then there's the 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 business relationship we have and the personal relationship we have and how do you think that all navigates 
that's definitely a work in progress. That's that's not black and white like you explained mm -hmm. it. Like it sounds like it should be. There's a lot of gray area there. Do that, plan this, plan that, and then on other times, especially when it comes to our personal stuff, it's more of I'm I'm not really interested. I don't shouldn't say I'm not interested. I'm not doesn't always make as much sense and it's not necessarily as interesting to me mm -hmm. and so i'm like well you're good with numbers you're the numbers person you got a handle on this whatever mm -hmm. whatever um both are things that i'm working on being better at because i also initially tried having that approach in my business and then a mentor of mine strongly mentioned that i should mm -hmm. definitely not do that and so i've started adopting some new uh new ways of looking at numbers for business and for personal and it's i mean especially for a small business or a new business it goes hand in hand like most of the businesses start starting funds starting monies to get everything going off the ground came out of our personal bank accounts it wasn't like the business magically had money sitting in an account on day one that we could right. use to to pay for stuff mm -hmm. and so it's to a point, it is interconnected. So knowing knowing where our personal finances are is just as important as knowing where the business's finances are because at the end of the day, everybody that wants our money wants our money and they don't care where it comes from. And we have to make sure that either the business or our personal money is paying that respectively mm -hmm. um, because – they say the only thing certain in life are death and taxes, but I'm pretty sure bill collectors could be in that list. No, I noticed that just this last month, you said one of your mentors had mentioned you getting um, involved a little more in your business finances. I've been running your business finances since inception, and that's the first time that you've showed that much interest, which was cool because a lot of times I'm excited about where the numbers are and because numbers aren't where you thrive and you're not a number nerd like I am um that you don't you're not seeing or you just don't care the same way I do so the business is helping you get involved in the finances all around but I've mentioned on the podcast before that you trust me to deal with our finances and that I obviously have a lot of trust to maintain by then not screwing them up. Um, and it helps your brain because you don't have to think about it. It helps my brain because I want to think about it and would be more nervous if I didn't know what was happening. But there is that level um, of the business money is being intertwined, but we still have contracts in place between our C Corp business, our corporation, and our personal, um, because you can get into issues with uh, insurance and taxes and uh, debt collectors and various things like that, if things are super, super muddled, like I talked about in the um, spring episodes, um, that, that money series I did. So while it is combined we also didn't do it by ourselves we hired attorneys to help us write corporation um so then there is that third party that we've spent money on to make sure that we're doing it right from the ground up because if our foundation isn't good everything can collapse especially with a, a business in your industry which is very um front end heavy on costs 
So kind of going back to your business and, and where you are versus where you're going, what is your mission or, and, or your goals with your business over say the next five or so years? Business. So the business has two sides right now, the, the construction side mm -hmm. and then the hay side. Um, the plan is to grow both of them. Um, the construction side will grow. I'd like it to grow more, a lot more growth on the hay side. Um, because the two kind of complement each other and that construction work, especially with dirt, is extremely seasonal because mud doesn't hold shape and mud doesn't compact. Um, so basically from the time it stops raining till the time it stops or time it starts raining is basically my season for construction type stuff. Being able to use that to help grow the hay business by giving the business a solid foundation and also um, some of the equipment crosses over onto both sides, which is great because it has multi-purpose, which therefore increases its value. Um, it also diversifies the business a little bit so that if that's a bad year for hay or the hay markets like right now are not great, um, the crops this year with a lot of the droughts and the floodings and things going on, not just here, but elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, all that affects the hay market. So the hay market's not super great right now. Um, things like that, being able to offset some of that with the construction, um, and then on the other hand, because of construction seasonal, it shuts down in the fall. And so being able to carry the the hay sales and the deliveries and things of that nature through the winter means that the business can have, it's not truly passive income, but more passive income through the winter mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have otherwise. Um, the only part that kind of overlaps is the height of construction season is usually right in the middle of hay season. So that's going to be a fine line to walk and balance, which thankfully should be possible with a couple of employees or a few employees uh -huh. to be able to cover both ends um so i think long term the the main thing is just to keep growing on both sides um and um, putting a little more focus into the hay side uh -huh. but uh both sides should grow there's still a couple more few more pieces of equipment i'd like to acquire for the construction side and then there's a whole laundry list of equipment for the hay side yeah as um what i've noticed is that the construction side seems to have a lot smaller barrier to entry like a lot of people once you have your ccb a lot of people can get into construction and there's work to be had but it seems like the agriculture side is a lot harder to get into there's a much larger barrier to entry just just simply because of cost of equipment let alone getting land or anything else yeah agriculture has significant barriers to entry i mean even even if people were were clamoring to want to be in agriculture which they're not um it's extremely tough if you don't have someone to either give you a large sum of money or basically pass down a working operation to you um, it is almost all but impossible. There are some programs that help uh, first generation farmers and new farmers and young farmers to try and get going, but they're kind of few and far between and most of them are underfunded. So the, the ability they have to help very many people or people in certain areas or certain types of agriculture is not great. Um, 
for example, just to get like a basic, like 200 cow dairy farm, you'd be looking at like, and say it came with a hundred acres. That's easily a two to $4 million upfront cost that you have to figure out a way to pay or finance before the first drop of milk hits the tank. And until the first drop of milk hits the tank and goes to the creamery, you don't see a, you don't see anything. You don't mm -hmm. get a single penny back on that investment. And agriculture, a lot of agriculture is that way. Like, for example, for hay, there's the upfront cost of the equipment. There's the upfront cost of the ground. And then there's a decent chance that you're going to have at least one season where you're going to have to work everything and do everything to the best of your abilities to get that first crop. And that first crop's probably not going to be awesome because you're probably not going to be able to have everything you need for all of the inputs. And so couple that with the fact that markets aren't super great and the cost of everything is rising except for the part that farmers get paid for is not rising. In fact, a lot of cases, the prices are slumping. Um, so yeah, yeah there, there's a significant barrier to entry. So being able to come in and just straight be like, hey, I'm a hay company and this is all I'm doing. Very, very, very difficult to do. Yeah, if um, I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but watch the Netflix series called Rotten. Um, that explains, I know it goes into the honey and sugar industry. It also goes into the uh, chicken industry and the, the dairy industry. And how, you know, the costs are associated with, um, with what they're actually being paid and how the government is subsidizing a lot of these industries. Um, and, and then there's just so much um, misinformation about the food we're consuming and how and what we're consuming that it, we could do a whole nother episode just on food consumptions, but watch rotten. Secondly, you had mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you um, grew up on a dairy farm, but you also then are calling yourself a first generation farmer. Can you explain that? Um, if I were to follow that path exclusively for agriculture, say for the hay business, um, I would be considered a first generation farmer because my family that has the dairy farm in Tillamook is my aunts and uncles and cousins and things like that. So my father, my parents, um, don't have a farm. Mm -hmm. And so so by definition, if I was to go out and try to purchase a farm, I would be considered a first generation farmer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have more experience than a lot of first generation farmers might because you grew up there. You went on a harvest run back east um, when you were younger, things like that. But that doesn't that gives you a leg up in what to do and not do in some cases, but not necessarily that financial leg up that a lot of uh family people who grow up on farms get a hold of right and that's the other thing too is a lot of these programs are designed to help with funding and they're designed to help you find properties and find farms and find places to do this but not very many if any programs are designed to teach you what you need to do so mm -hmm. they're like okay here's your money here's your farm okay our part's done and then it's well, what am I supposed to do? Or I've never encountered this. And and I don't know that any amount of experience on a farm will prepare you for absolutely everything. Yeah. But a lot of people trying to get into it, another barrier in education. 
they they've never done it they don't have the experience their knowledge is limited and a lot of county extension services offer a lot of good information to help but there's not really anything that replaces having actually done it so um you said you mentioned the county extension services um i'll put a link in there for the ones in oregon but normally if you go to your agriculture university or you look up county extension offices within your state or county um there will be one that is associated with the agriculture university in your state so we're in oregon our agriculture university is oregon state university they have an extension agent in each county and that person's job is to kind of help you learn and manage some of those things even if you're just learning like your your quarter of an acre garden at home they'll have resources for that let alone getting into larger operations or wanting to raise livestock or things like that so what would you tell other people who wanted to start a business in agriculture or construction what advice do you have or or words of wisdom it is not nearly as glamorous and uh, uh dream boaty as hollywood and others would have you believe it's a lot of hard work it's long hours it's dirty work um definitely 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 try and do your homework as much as you can before you sign yourself to anything that commits you to something that you may or may not want to be able to get out of um especially agriculture because like i said there's a ton of upfront costs there are programs that help with that um there's there's quite a few resources as far as trying to find farms and or get lending and or grants for farms but there's not a lot that do education so definitely try and do your research and try and learn what you can about whichever specific agriculture sector you're looking at and for construction it's it's a little simpler because obviously dealers that sell equipment will have financing um Nothing will beat actual seat time experience, but you can obviously, anybody can walk into a dealership and sign paperwork and come out owning a piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. um, so the construction side, I would say, has far less barriers to entry. But again, you want to do your homework. Um, if there's a way to get actual experience for other people, that would be good. Um, and then it just, because there's significant upfront costs just trying to make sure you have everything set for the best bang for your buck like there's half a dozen pieces of equipment i would love to own but as far as return on investment um it doesn't make sense for me to own all six of them at least right now and mm -hmm. so being able to pick and choose and kind of decide which equipment is best for starting out and what can provide the best roi is critical and also the type of work you want to do. Um, construction work, especially with equipment, is almost as diversified as agriculture. You know, you can do excavation, you can do land clearing, you could do directional drilling, there's demolition, there's all kinds. Um, so obviously knowing, not maybe necessarily specializing in just one, but knowing what areas you want to be in or what areas you're good at or what areas you can afford the equipment to get into or what's even in demand in your area. I'm guessing there's probably not much demand for 
land clearing and cutting down trees and brush in Death Valley, California, if that's where you happen to live. You're probably wanting to look for something that's a little more tailored to that area. Um, just like I wouldn't expect to see solar panel construction companies in Seattle because, you know, it rains like 320 days out of the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so getting that, that um, experience, if you can get on somebody else's job site and you might not get paid well um, because they have to do things like um, make sure that they have uh, workers' comp insurance and things like that. Um, farmers don't get paid a whole lot, but they need people to work for them. So getting out onto those um situations uh plus with construction depending on where you want to be there's lots and lots of unions that um are recruiting consistently for for people because the median age of both the construction industry and the agriculture industry are well into their 50s or 60s because we don't have enough people our age and we're in our 30s let alone people in their 20s entering those industries because like you said at the top of the podcast we're still coming out of that generation of generation uh, x and the millennials where we were told you have to go to college to get a good job, but then we are in that situation, especially if you're if you're you know millennial two thousand eight two thousand nine graduate of high school or college, um, where we couldn't get good jobs regardless because the economy had gone to crap, and so we now had student loan debt or have student loan debt that we can't. Um, do anything with because we were told to do that but then we really like you know swinging a hammer or being an electrician or uh moving dirt or you know whatever the case may be um so trying to get onto somebody else's farm somebody else's um job site how did you gain more of that experience after you left Tillamook? Uh, so I went to school, um, did my diesel mechanics thing. And then after that, it was like, okay, we're in the real world now, get a job, figure it out. Um, that was 2011 and things were not great for jobs because the economy was still recovering. Um, I found a company in the Midwest that did harvest runs. And they hired crews every year because it's seasonal, so they can't afford or justify keeping, you know, 20 or 30 of us year round. Um, but for every summer, you know, they need operators for combines and grain carts and semi trucks. And I thought, well, this is right up my alley. Let's go do it. And they're hiring. Um, being, you know, 20 years old and being told, hey, come run my half a million dollar machine and I'll give you a place to sleep and food and a paycheck. And well, I mean, doesn't get any better than that. Right. So I went and did that. Um, and then the season ended and I came back, but with that, I had gained the experience of running harvest equipment and driving truck. And so hauling grain and hauling equipment, things like that. So with that experience, I was able to then jump into the other industry that's almost always hiring that they never get enough people for, which is truck driving. Um, so for that harvest run, they required me to have my CDL. So I got it before I went and I went, well, I can go to work with this because, again, same thing at that point. 
they wanted diesel mechanics to be 25 years old and have 30 years experience. Um, so I went and started driving trucks and I did that until I started thinking, you know, I kind of miss running equipment and I want to run equipment. Well, you got laid off too when you were driving truck. Yeah, that did also happen. And then I found another outfit to drive for. Right. Um, but I looked into, and this is something anyone can look into. They're they're all over the country. They're actually all around the world. Um, I joined the International Brotherhood of Equipment Operators. Um, it is a union. Um, Oregon has one hall up by Portland, and they cover all of Oregon and the five southern counties of Washington. And they have apprenticeships. Um, you, they, they have a fairly rigorous application process. Um, and if you get through the application progress process, there's a fairly rigorous initial training, which is a month long up until this point, they don't pay you. They don't support you. It's basically, you got to figure it out. But if you get through all of that and they take you on as either an apprentice or if you're skilled, you can test out and be a journeyman right away, either way. Um, once you get accepted into the apprenticeship, you now are getting paid on the job training. So anybody who wants to run construction equipment can potentially look at that. And because they're union, they tend to pay fairly well. It's I traveled around quite a bit. Granted, it was just, you know, the state of Oregon and southern Washington, but I traveled around quite a bit. I was in places I probably wouldn't have been otherwise um, getting paid to work these jobs. And I was running heavy equipment. Um, and then I kind of sort of started missing truck driving. I think there's kind of a trend here. Um, <laughs> and I decided that running two households and being gone all the time and all that, plus coupled with missing driving. Um, I decided to go back and drive truck. And I did that up until I decided I missed equipment again. And then to, instead of being an operator union in operators union or with construction, um, that's how I ended up in sawmills in their log yards because everyone likes to run those giant log handlers or at least people that like running equipment. Um, and then I did that. And then from there it's turned into, basically starting the foundation and getting the business off the ground because i went well if i own my own trucks i own my own equipment i can run whichever one i miss the most whenever i want and i don't have to jump jobs and travel all over and so that's kind of how i ended up here perfect so now so that was your your kind of training leading up to this now um we switch from kind of training to mentorship. So what uh, mentors or resources uh, have you used or are you using and which are you recommending to people in one or either industry? Um, so I mentioned the operators union, they have apprenticeships. And, and even if you don't want to be an equipment operator, just about every trade has a union and basically every union has an, has an apprenticeship. So you can be an electrician, you can be a welder, you can be a pipe fitter, you can be a contract, a general contractor, uh, like a carpenter. Um, yeah, carpenter. There's, there's concrete, masonry. I mean, basically the trades. If you, if you have an interest in those at all, 
there's probably a union and there's probably an apprenticeship, which is a great way to get into it because once you get into the apprenticeship, you get paid training. And then when you finish the apprenticeship, you're a journeyman and you're making a very nice wage. Um, for example, I was in the operators union over 10 years ago and the journeyman crane operators I were working with were easily making 60 to $70 an hour. And that was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that's gone up since then. Yeah. Um, uh, mentorships. It's always good to find, to try and find people that have done what you're doing. Whose lifestyle you want. Yes. Whose lifestyle is similar to what you're looking for. Um, if you're starting out doing something new, it's okay to not be the smartest person in the room. In fact, you don't want to be. You want to try and surround yourself with people who have been where you've been or doing what you're doing. So therefore, you can kind of watch and learn from them, especially if they're willing to share their knowledge with you. Um, that's been that's been a big one. Um, finding mentors who have been in agriculture, who have been in construction and who are willing to share their time and knowledge with the rest of us and who have, you know, made their goals and hit their goals and are, are successful. But at one point, you know, they were exactly where I am. It's not only that it motivational, it's educational because it's really cool to be for them to be like, yeah, I, I'm successful. I've got a multi-million dollar business. I get to, I get to take trips every other weekend and go places and do things. But then they tell you the story of, hey, when I was starting out, I was, you know, 20, 25 years old, whatever. I barely scraped enough money together to buy my first piece of equipment. And it was old and it was ratty and it was breaking all the time. And we ran it 24-7 to try and make things work. And then, you know, from there, they caught a break and something happened and they were able to to expand and add something else or to make it better. And then they just went from there. And so getting to hear those stories from the people who you see as successful is motiv extremely motivational. And that's been a big one for me because there are days more often than not where I question just about every decision I make. And I wonder, is this worth it? Is this right? Is this going to be okay? And to hear those stories, it also helps with that because it's like, you know, other people have been there. They've done it. They understand. Um, they're able to um, share some knowledge. That's a question that I'm sure mentors get asked a lot. You know, if you did it all over again, what would, what would you know, 20-year-old or 15-year-old or however old they were, what would you have wanted to have heard from somebody else? Or what's one thing you could have done different that would have avoided X, Y, and Z? Who are the mentors? And they and they don't have to be people that you have met before. Um, they can be people like Mike Rowe from Micro Works and his um uh advocacy of the trades for people or someone else. Um this is going to sound kind of funny, but there's a guy on TikTok called, his name is James, and his TikTok handle is Well in Septic Life. Yeah, and James Butler. James Butler. Yes. Thank you. I couldn't remember his last name. Uh, he's one of my mentors. All I do is watch his videos on TikTok. That's, that's mm -hmm. it. But he puts a lot of good information. He's another small business owner. He's on the other side of the country. He's not in an industry even remotely close to what I'm doing. 
but he shares a lot of good knowledge and insight into how he runs his business and things that come up in his business that I go, that's really cool. Or I never thought of that, or I could take that and apply that to my business or, or my policies or whatever. And so he's definitely one that I'd recommend. Um, Jesse Bounds is another one. He's here in Oregon. Uh, he has a hay press operation down in Junction City. He's actually just within the last year revved up and ramped up where he's starting to offer uh, mentorships, uh, things like weekly Zoom calls for small business owners. Um, he's wanting to put together a podcast and a bunch of other things, but he's been sharing his story and some of his knowledge. Um, he's on all the socials. He's been he's been one of my my biggest motivators lately because he's in an industry similar to mine and he's one of the people who's been sharing the hey when i first started out this is what i had to do or this is what happened and things of that nature um there's another small business owner uh grant porter porter remodeling he's been great for a mentor as well he's been a wealth of knowledge um He's he's a general contractor. He builds cabinets and houses and things. So again, an industry not even close to mine, but his knowledge and what he's seen and done because he's been doing it basically his entire life and he's in his sixties. Um, so just more general knowledge for business minded, being more business minded. Um, issues he's ran into over the years for the business, things of that nature. What about Hay Kings? Uh, hey Kings, that's a good one. Um, I don't know specific names, but I know they've got a podcast. That one obviously is fairly specific. It's specifically Hey, but it's a podcast I listen to because I'm trying to gain more knowledge and insight um, into the hay industry specifically because I am green by all accounts for the hay side because growing up we made silage. We didn't make dry hay. So I I basically kind of have to learn the entire process before I can do it successfully myself. Um, so that's been a great one, too, for information and things I never thought about mm -hmm. and things I can apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are those are all great answers. And um, OK, so I got just a couple more questions. You said growing up, so I want to go back real quick and have you tell us what's your money story? How did you grow up? feeling about money, learning about money, and how has that changed as you grow? So money was taboo. It was, we don't talk about money, finances are personal. Um, not really a whole lot of money education growing up. I mean, I obviously, I was working, I did work for the family. Um, I got an allowance or when I was older, I actually earned paychecks. Um, but other than that, like, I learned how to use a checkbook in school. I learned how to how to how to you know balance bank accounts and things like that and pay bills more or less from school. I may have been one of the last ones to get yeah. that kind of stuff out of yeah. school, but it was yeah, I I never I never would have thought in a million years. In fact, I still don't um I don't think I could call my dad today and be like, "Hey dad, how's your bank account looking?" or or "How's your finance?" you know. Those are just because of that of his generation it was the money is private the kid the kid has no business knowing any of it um 
and while I believe that maybe your kids don't need to know every faucet of your life and every little nook and cranny and penny accounted for, I feel like they should at least be in on the conversation enough to have like a real world example. Like, say you're paying bills. There's no nothing saying that your kid can't be in on that and kind of learn and see how how you pay bills, not necessarily, you know, how big your bank account is or how much money you have or don't have just more of the process like. This is how much you know you make in a month. This is how much we spend in a month on X, Y, Z. That that sort of thing. Right. Um, I think would definitely put a lot more people a lot further ahead. Yeah. Um, because very briefly between high school and college, I thought that cards meant they were plastic and they were infinitely loaded with money, and that was never an issue. And then I went to college and learned very quickly that banks will immediately tell you no if you decide to spend more money than what you actually have. Um, so starting out, I was terrible with money. I, I basically was paycheck to paycheck and kind of not even really paycheck to paycheck. It was more robbing Peter to pay Paul. It was, it was, Hey, if I set this up just right, I can have these five things. I'll hit my bank at once. And I get one overdraft fee instead of five. Um, if there was any money left over after I paid my bills, I immediately needed to spend it on something savings. What's savings? Why are we saving it? I can spend it. I can have this thing that I want to buy. Um, so I would say that that's probably my money. I mean, my family was, is, is, I would say middle class blue collar. Like we, mm -hmm. we weren't extravagantly rich beyond our wildest dreams, but we weren't, you know, or necessarily either. like we we had what we needed our living was modest we had a we had a decent modest house you know i always had clothes i always had food that sort of thing and how has that changed like before you're saying in college you were broke and i and i've talked about you doing the bank account thing where you have one charge instead of one overdraft charge instead of several now 15 almost 15 years later um well, I think at first it was just you dragging me kicking and screaming, saying that, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to spend all this money. We need to be smart and, you know, do the thing you're supposed to actually do. Um, so a lot of it, I think, was just learning a new mindset. Yeah. And whether it's money, whether it's business, starting a business, life, life in general. Basically, I've kind of sort of learned in the last year that everything comes down to a mindset. Mm -hmm. So most of what I'm learning from my mentors is how to have the right mindset for this particular situation. Uh -huh. Like, like Jesse was the mentor who kicked me in the butt and said, Hey, you need to know what your business's financials are doing. You can't not run a successful business and have no idea what your financials are. So it's getting into the mindset of the numbers aren't scary. The numbers can't hurt me. I don't necessarily need to know every intricate detail of the numbers, but I need to know enough to know what the business needs or doesn't need. Okay. So I think it's just getting into the mindset that, no, we don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. No, we don't have to spend anything that's possibly left over after bills are paid. It's okay to have savings. Um, it's okay to have trust in other people to not spend your money and mm -hmm. or steal it, lose it, embezzle it, whatever. Um, so that's kind of been a big shift for me is just essentially uh, compartmentalizing money. So it's not 
just money. It's this is fun money. This is business money. This is bill money. Mm-hmm. This is food money or you know, whatever. So that you can cover all your bases. Yeah. Yeah. And have you, because our son normally hangs out with me because you still have a full-time job and you're working in business, but um, have you had situations where you've talked to him about money? Oh yeah. Um, and he's four, mind you guys. He's he he's come out on jobs with me, which is one of the unknown perks I didn't realize about owning your own business is that you can take your kid to work and you don't have a boss that tells you you can't. Um, so, um, yeah, it's come up. I've had him do little things to help me on jobs. And if he's done a really good job or he's been a really good helper or whatever, like I've given him money. I said, hey, you know, buddy you know, you did a really good job today. I want to, I want to, I'm going to pay you for the work that you did. And of course he's all excited. He's four. Um, how much do you think I should pay you? Well, right now I think the biggest thing he thinks in money is a dollar. So it's always a dollar, whether it's an hour, five minutes, 10 hours, it's always a dollar, but that's what we agree on. So he's happy with a dollar. We agree. I pay him a dollar for his work and he gets to, um, within reason, obviously, decide what he wants to do with it. He can put it in his piggy bank. He can use it to buy a toy or something he wants, whatever. Um, he gets money from other people, too. It's not like I've only ever given him $3 in his life. But um, <laughs> So that conversation, it's also gone the other way where, say, um, he wants something or needs something, and it's not something that he necessarily has to have. And it's like, well, you know, we can buy this, but right now we don't have the money for it. And it's it's usually something silly and fun. It's not like we're depriving him of food or clothes or something. With me, a lot of times he'll ask me to take a picture of something. So he remembers what it is he wanted so he can get it during Christmas or his birthday. And I was going to say, a lot of times if it's something like that and he doesn't have the money for it or, or we don't, you know, necessarily have the money for it like she said, we'll do that. And then a lot of times he gets it for his birthday or Christmas or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at four, he's already kind of sort of getting a basic, like, okay, I can do things to earn money. Money is not an infinite resource. Mom and dad aren't walking ATM machines, mm-hmm. um, which I think a lot of kids don't get. I mean, even I, to a point had that growing up where, I knew my parents didn't have infinite money and I knew that I couldn't just get money from them whenever I wanted. But I feel like more often than not, I would ask them for money probably more than I should have. And more often than not, probably more than they should have. They probably let me do it for a lot of it. It was, you know, Hey dad, can I have 20 bucks for X, Y, Z thing? And it was, you know, as long as it wasn't something that my parents thought was completely asinine, they'd be like, Oh yeah, here's 20 bucks so you get out in the real world and you're like okay i have money i must spend it oh yeah that could absolutely be part of that um but i think that not that i think my kid should work his life away no that's not where i'm going either but i feel like a, a nice balance between you know being a kid and having the freedoms and having your parents and grandparents and whoever you know do stuff like that can be balanced with you know, hey, do do a few hours of work here and earn, you know, mm-hmm. 20 bucks or whatever for doing it or whatever it ends up being. Yeah. And then having that money to then do with as they please, mm-hmm. unless they want to save it up. 
Um, that's the other thing as a kid, you have no concept of saving money. You, in fact, uh, my parents and grandparents did savings bonds and I used to hate getting those for Christmas and my birthday because I'm like, this is useless. I can't use this. This isn't even money. I want, I want money or I want a toy or I want a video game or I want, you know, whatever. So unfortunately, I think kids have to mature into understanding savings. And so I think until they do, you kind of just have to force it on them. Because obviously, when I went to college, and we turned all those bonds in, I was like, Oh, this is great. This is an extra, you know, $10,000 that I can use for school, which is exactly what they wanted it for. But six year old me didn't want a piece of paper that said I had 50 bucks. I yeah. wanted 50 bucks. Maturity thing. Like, I don't think kids are ever going to fully grasp that one. So like our son, he has savings accounts that we put money in and grandparents and whoever else put money in. So the other thing that's kind of nice is, is I don't know that we're going to tell him about it until he's old enough to maybe do something smart with it. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't He doesn't know about it. Um, he, he knows about the money that's in his piggy bank. He knows money comes from mama's purse. He knows money comes from us working. Like he wants us to hang out with him, but it's like, okay, buddy, do you want to go do this thing? It costs money. Okay, we got to go to work for a couple hours. My dad always teases him, and he goes, "Well, we're we're at work making money, honey, <laughs> because that's what we do when we're at work. We get to be um, blessed in that we enjoy the work we're doing for the most part. Um, you know, nobody ever gets to do exactly what they want to do at all times, but for the most part, we like our work, and he's he's learning that you can enjoy work, you can work and play, but you're absolutely right. I by no means have told him about a savings account. The last two questions. One, where can people learn more about you and your business and work with you? Uh, so I have a Facebook, an Instagram, and a Nextdoor account. Um, I have obviously my personal ones on all there, all on on all of them. Um, and then also the Hogan Enterprises Hay and Equipment. And I say that specifically because that's how it's titled on there. Um, has a Facebook, an Instagram, and a next door. So any of those places you can find the business page. But I do three posts a week on all of them. I do two reels a week on Facebook, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Um, and so I try to keep updates on there as far as like recent customer jobs or certain things I do. So there's always new content before and after pictures. Um, I've got. It's kind of interesting. I've got, um, uh, other than the U.S., I actually have a follower in Uzbekistan, a follower in New Zealand, and a follower in Poland. So I'm assuming that since I'm not going to do work for them, that they're just following because they like to see what I'm doing, or maybe the pictures are cool or the videos or whatever. So I think that's kind of cool that they're possibly just interested in what I post. Um, so obviously you can find it there, like it, follow it if you want. Um, like I said, I try to put stuff up there fairly regularly. It's kind of recent and updating and um, as things happen, because I think it's important. One of the things I want to do with my business is I want my business to be fairly transparent as in I don't I don't try and hide things or cover up what I'm doing or anything like that. I've already been able to do some of that, which has been awesome because for a business in essentially its infancy, you know, only two years, basically already being able to do a volunteer project for a nature preserve. We did a donation uh, sponsorship for a local equestrian team. And then we also did a equipment donation to um, 
a local town that did a uh, lamb and wool style lamb and wool uh, pork. And so being able to do that, that's kind of what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be able to give back to, to help out. Um, but obviously I can't fund that hundred percent myself. So being able to do it through a business has been great because that's the kind of stuff I want to do. Um, the nature preserve was a ton of fun. Um, once we actually got into the, they wanted a, a building pad made so that they could build a, uh, classroom, um, so then their students didn't have to stand out in the rain all winter. Um, when we actually got to the part where I could get in there with the equipment and build the pad, it was actually quite a bit of fun. Um, and being able to to do that to help them and, you know, donate, give back, that sort of thing. Um, I've always liked helping other people out and I want to continue to help other people out. It's partially in my business model for the hay business as well. I'm I'm looking at a couple different prospects for um, being able to do donations as well as some other things I'm looking at for the hay business to help as well. Um, and then the construction side, you know, more I'm hoping to do more donations, things of that nature. And I just hope it turns into more and more of that as the business grows and, be, and becomes more successful. But at the end of the day, I have to remember that if the business isn't successful, then I can't be successful and I can't do those things because unfortunately most of those things have a cost associated with them. Um, and the business allows me to afford that basically. Nice. Yeah. So, okay. Last question. What does wealthy mean? I think wealthy to me is being able to do things not necessarily because you want to because like you had mentioned nobody ever gets to do 100% what they want to do 100% of the time that that dimension is not this one um so even with my even with my own business doing things that I want to do it's never 100% things I want to do um so I feel like wealthy to me would mean um being able to do the things you want to do a majority of the time without necessarily worrying about where your next paycheck is coming from or can you afford it or um, if I do this thing, how long is it going to take me to recover type thing. Um, so basically probably just financial security, but nothing, nothing crazy. Like I don't have to be a millionaire. And I've even mentioned that. I said, I, I don't want to make millions of dollars with this business. I don't, I don't ever for, I don't see that as a goal. Like my goal is not to get rich in this business. My goal is simply to afford the lifestyle, a comfortable lifestyle and do what I want to do, which is the donations and the, the giving back and doing work for other people. So I feel wealthy to me would be having the ability to do those things. That makes perfect sense because you're going to, you don't intend to take all that money out of the business and put it in your own piggy bank. You intend to put it in other people's piggy banks, put it in nonprofits, put it helping children, helping our community members. And, and that is um, a more ad admirable goal in my opinion. So I appreciate you making letting me make you talk to me <laughs> um and and sharing your 
you so much for supporting myself and the Wanting to Wealthy podcast. For more free content, consider signing up for the monthly newsletter at wantingtowealthy.com slash subscribe. Please share the podcast with someone you think can get value from it and screenshot yourself listening and share it on social media. I would love it if you tag me at Wanting to Wealthy when you do. If you are ready to take the next step for yourself and your financial journey, become a community member at patreon.com slash wanting to wealthy. The Wanting to Wealthy podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by myself, Ashley Hogan.